Well, uh, good afternoon. If you're uh, not used to being here, um, my name's Seth. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we are at the moment going through a series on spiritual warfare or Christian warfare. I think it's a ten-week series. This is week three, and we're springing out of a, a passage in the Bible called Ephesians chapter six, which is, I guess, considered by most people to be the classic spiritual warfare passage. Just to say, though, um, we're springing out of it, so we're using that as our anchor, if you like, but the, the idea with the series is to give a broad understanding, biblically, of spiritual warfare, how it works. Um, so, so, as well as springing out of that passage, we will be including lots of other scriptures. It will be a bit like that, this series. So there will be a PowerPoint today, as I refer to other scriptures, generally speaking, the vast majority of them will come up here, so you can follow it, rather than having to flick through the whole time, although feel free to do that if you're comfortable, um, if you're comfortable doing that. So, um, so far, we have looked in this series at the reality of opposition that we face as Christians. That when you become a Christian, you get yourself a new enemy, in that sense. That's not quite as bad as it sounds, because the Bible says that before you're a Christian, you're an enemy of God. That's really bad. Um, and when the Bible is an enemy of God, it's not saying that um, it's not saying well because everyone actively, deliberately, willfully, consciously hates God in the sense that they're all Satan worshippers or something like that. But it's talking about our um, sinful disposition, which is a manifestation of the fact that we don't want to submit to God. We want to do our own thing, and so that in and of itself creates enmity um, with God, creates separation from God and, and we are under the wrath of God and God considers us, how can I describe it, enemies whom he loves, which explains the gospel that he lays down his life for his enemies, incredible. So in that sense, although you think, oh no, I've become a Christian, I've found a new enemy, yeah, but you used to be enemies with God, now you're reconciled, now you're in his family, now he's, um, he's brought you into his embrace. Now he's forgiven you your sins. Now he's given you eternal life. Now he has established you with a hope and a future. And I could go on and on for hours saying those kind of superlatives. Okay? Because in the gospel, God does amazing things for us. But the reality is we do find ourselves with a new enemy. And uh, remember at the start I said, what kind of, how do you view life? If you could fit it in with, with a particular kind of film genre or film, how would you closest described the way you view life. Are you more kind of rom-com? You view life as a kind of a romantic comedy and it's all just a bit of fun and in the end it'll work out great. Or, you know, is it more sci-fi fantasy, just you're a bit funny and um, even if you don't quite realise it? Or is it... And, and I said, I think probably the film that best sums up uh, a, a biblical view of life, best, not perfectly best, is Lord of the Rings. Because there's a higher purpose going through the whole thing, an amazing uh, grand narrative, if you like. There's heroics, there's adventure, there is love, romance. There's definitely opposition. Now, I've just been reflecting on that a bit because I've referred to that over the last few weeks. And when I got home from church last week, I said to Davina, I said, Davina, I said, it feels to me like when I talk about spiritual warfare to the church, even though the vast majority of them know that the Christian life is warfare, I always feel like I'm saying something brand new. I always feel like when I sit down, I'm leaving like a room full of really shocked and upset people. Like, I got up and shared some news that no one was expecting. You know, like, I got up and said something brand new that no Christian has ever said before. Everyone's done anything unexpected. You think that's like a real warfare. It kind of feels like that. And to me, I said, yeah, you know, 
uh, a mentality that takes it into account without getting really weird. You know, like Terminate. Remember the Terminator film where um, the woman, she, you know, she, she, has, she has a warfare mentality, doesn't she? But quite frankly, would you want to go out for a meal with her? I mean, she's just strange. She gets warfare, but she spends her whole life doing chin-ups as a result. I mean, it's basically all she does because she's getting ready for the battle. And it just creates a kind of intensity that is just, it's off-key. It's not helpful. And so, um, and so I think we struggle in our minds to have the, a biblical uh, alertness, vigilance, watchfulness, sobriety, um, but at the same time, still be able to um, rest in the fact that uh, Jesus is victorious, um, God is sovereign, and how we hold those things together. So I want to just try and explain how the Christian life is different from the Lord of the Rings in one key way, because there's lots of ways, in one key way, and here it is. In the Lord of the Rings films, films, for 99% of those films, the key moment is yet to happen. The key moment is when the ring of power gets thrown back into the lake of, the mountain of doom, Mount Doom, and is at that, stay with me, and is at that point destroyed. Because at that point, everyone knows this thing's a done deal, we've got victory. Up until that point, it's always in the balance. Which I think is why when you put the Lord of the Rings DVD in, and that freeze frame before the film starts, the music basically just freaks you out. Because is the ring going to end up in Mount Doom or not? It's not settled. And so there's this lingering uncertainty the whole time. With the Christian life, the gospel, it's different. That bit has happened. When Jesus laid down his life for our sins, we are told that at that point he defeated Satan. We are told that through death he destroyed the one who has the power over death, that he might liberate, set free those who were slaves to the fear of death their whole lives. You see? So, so that bit has happened as a result. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings film, the stage we're at now is we're kind of sitting on the volcano with a big bits of lava shooting over our heads. Okay? And we're about to be rescued by an eagle. Okay? It's that stage. It's the big moment has been done. Jesus has won. Now, between that point and Jesus' return, the Bible says that Satan, knowing his time is short, has very great wrath. So his doom is sealed and he knows it. But as a result of that, he knows he has short time and wants to do as much damage as he can. So I want you to really grasp this in your mind. His activity is real. His wrath is great. But in terms of the grand narrative being under threat, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The ring has been destroyed in Mount Doom. Our sin and the power of death and all these things have been dealt with by the gospel. Is that, do you get that? Now, if you're here and you haven't watched the film, you think, I'm getting on with it. I haven't even seen the film. I don't know what you're talking about. But I just thought it's really important after referring to it for a couple of weeks because I was thinking, I wonder if that's why some of the guys have gone home kind of, or it's just felt a bit, people have felt a bit uncertain. Um, if you felt uncertain because basically you've really not up till now 
accepted in your heart that it's warfare. And as a result, you've been being kind of not watchful. You've been playing around with sin. You've been giving away to all kinds of dark stuff. And as a result, that's rocked you. That's the good kind of rocking. We want you to be rocked that way so that you wake up and get your armour on. If you've been feeling uncertain because you've been thinking, man alive, which way is it going to go? We don't want you to, to be thinking that way. The Bible is clear which way it's going to go. Victory all the way to Jesus Christ. So walk with him and you will yourself also have victory. So, I wanted to just clear that up before we got any further. Strange silence in the room, but I'm going to carry on. Okay, we've been looking at opposition by the demonic powers, whether directly, either directly through oppression, discouragement, condemnation, negativity, even physical affliction, or indirectly through other people, um, even well-intentioned people at times. We looked at the words, um, wrestling, how it speaks about proximity and closeness. It's not a long-distance fight. It's up close and personal. We've looked at some of the strategies involved in wrestling. If the wrestler can intimidate another wrestler, all well and good. If a wrestler can get his opponent in a hold so that they're paralysed, all well and good. If a wrestler can um, uh, strike their opponent in order to confuse, disorientate, all well and good. These are strategies of Satan. He wants to paralyse believers. He wants to confuse and disorientate believers. He wants to intimidate believers. The Bible says that as we put on the whole armour of God, we can stand against all those things. I'm going to read that in just a moment. In a moment. It's imperative that we stand and not crumble. God is looking to produce believers that do not crumble as soon as they take a hit, as soon as, they, as, soon as the wrestler jumps in the ring and starts pulling nasty faces, they don't get intimidated and run away, but they stand face off and win through their union with Christ. Not because they're really tough. Through their union with Christ and he is victorious. We looked at the key last week of being humble and donning all that the Lord has given you armory-wise uh, instead of thinking that you'll be okay um, because you won't. You only win spiritual warfare by doing it God's way. So being cocky, casual, or complacent will just leave you really in a bit of a mess. You'll, you'll take some hits you don't need to take. Um, you'll come under discouragement. You'll come. You'll, you'll get drawn into temptation and trapped in sin and fight. You don't need to. You really don't need to. Okay. So if you're in that position, keep listening. There's, there is good news. So let's turn, uh, please, to Ephesians chapter six. We'll read that passage. Then we will get into this. And um, here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, um, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, thank you for this passage. We pray, Lord God, that you would make it live in our hearts. 
as also the other scriptures that we look at today. I pray for a real, uh, a real an impartation of life and truth uh, and grace among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is going to be the final intro week. Um, we're going to do one more intro before we get into these itemized elements of the armour of God. And we want to look at this and try and understand, looking at verse 13 today, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I want to look at this in the evil day. What does that mean? What is Paul getting at when he says, if you put the armour on in the evil day, you'll be able to withstand? What's the evil day? Um, it's a unique phrase in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else. So you have to really try and piece it together. When you get something like that, you think, well, is a lesson in, in terms of Bible interpretation, hermeneutics. What you do, if you ever find a scripture, you think, what does that mean? If you can find um, scriptures that are the same phrase elsewhere, then you pull them together, you can begin to then, ah, it helps you understand when this phrase is used, this is meant, particularly if it's by the same author. Well, the evil day is not used anywhere else. Um, so, on that front, you just have to really do your best to work out what it could mean and then say, well, do those ideas, are those ideas backed up biblically? The first, I think there are two ways you can take this, both are true. And the first, I believe, um, is this, is that there, is, there are seasons that come in the Christian life where Satan, or perhaps not personally Satan, but demons, evil spirits sent by Satan, are particularly active, are sent strategically to uh, mess things up one way or another. Okay? Uh, so I want to show you this, just some illustrations in the Bible. So we show, first of all, first of all, it happened to Simon Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. If you could just get the first slide up here. Um, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan's demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. We'll look at Job in a minute. But Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. So Jesus was aware that there had been some kind of, in the spirit realm, activity whereby Satan had said, I want that one, I'm going to have that one. We know that what follows, very shortly after that, was Satan denying, uh, sorry, Peter, Simon, Simon Peter denying that he knew Jesus three times on the same night. And um, he was gripped by fear that was completely out of character. I mean, literally about an hour before he denied Jesus, Peter drew his sword, and cut someone's ear off, you know, obviously it wasn't very good aim. But anyway, you can see he was a brave and a bold man. He was a brash man. He wasn't the kind of man. And a few hours even before that, he said to Jesus, I will die with you. But he seems to have been gripped by a very unnatural fear um, shortly after this and denied three times, at one point to a young servant girl, who denied, I don't know Jesus. And it seems that there was a satanic fear that gripped him that night in some way. It was Simon Peter's evil day. And then with Job, we see the Lord says to Satan, um, basically, um, Satan was speaking to the Lord and saying that, um, you know, uh, if the only reason why Job, this man of God, was so righteous is because God just protected him all the time. If you removed your protection, then he'll curse you to your face. So the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then Job's evil day came. Well, we know that he, he lost his, all, basically all of his business and all of his children. Horrendous. It was, it was an evil day for him. And then we find David experiencing something like that in one of the Psalms, in Psalm 18, 
I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised that I'm saved from my enemies. And he talked about his experience. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, you heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. These are examples of seasons, whether through other people doing things or natural disasters. Satan can be behind all of these things and it's the evil day. And um, the main point I want to make really here is that these, these seasons are inevitable. It seems that some believers experience evil days more frequently than others. It seems that some you think, man, you look on and you think, I don't know how you're still going. Have you ever had that? You know, you look at people and go, I don't know how you're still here and still, and still running. I mean, you know, you just think it is only by the grace of God. You seem to have hit one thing after another in your season. Um, and I think you, what, what, you, what you can put that down to most definitely is the fact that the Bible says that you will never be tested on what you can bear. And the Lord knows what you can handle. And so, and so you know, there are most definitely times where, you know, I reckon Satan will request to do something and he says, no, absolutely not. Because he knows you're not ready. And um, so th- there are these seasons and maturity is about recognising they're going to come not spending your whole life worrying about when it's going to come. That's a really bad idea. But knowing that in God's economy, in God's wisdom, there will be seasons that are intense, that feel dark, that are a bit like that. But during those seasons, God will give you the grace, the armour to get through and to get through, not in worse shape at all, but that God will work it all together for, his, for good, for your good, for his purposes, and that you will come through more like Christ. So you can live in the peace of that. But that when that season kicks in, even though you know all those things, it still feels tough. And you've got to get your head around that as well. You, 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 being victorious doesn't mean that you literally kind of bounce through life. That isn't victorious Christianity, that you just bounce through everything. Yeah, hit a tough one, but not to worry. You know, no, that, if someone said that, I'd be thinking, I, I don't think you have. I think you think you have, but I don't think you have. Because when you hit a tough one, it's not like that. It's darn tough. You know, there have been seasons in my life where literally, you know, you go into a leaders meeting, people are like, how are you doing? And they'll say, I'm still here. I'll just tell them. Because you sort of get fed up with saying things that sound, sound good. You know, I say, I'm still here. And if they get, look really well, I'll say, it's all right, it's cool. But that's where it's at in the moment. And it seems to be like that. You're not all singing or dancing. You're not on the mountaintop. Right? But you know, God's with you in it. And he's promised you'll never leave us so I think that is the first way that it should be that it could be taken I think the second way we get a clue from the chapter just before in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16 where Paul says this make the best use of the time because the days are evil the closest you're probably going to get to an identical frame make the make best use of the time he's talking about living holy and you know got, not getting into dark things he says, make, actually, make use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. So actually, I think you could legitimately say the age we live in is the evil day as well. Okay? So I think that's... Oh, I'm going to show you why again, biblically, why it holds um, together. I think, firstly, there's a hermeneutical thing going on there. The same person has used a similar phrase within probably about 20 minutes of writing. He may be talking about the same thing. Okay? So that, that's another way of testing that. 
So just to put your attention to that. But the Bible talks about the age we live in in terms that are not naive or idealistic. The Bible says Christ has won, God's kingdom has been inaugurated and all those glorious things. But the same Bible writers will speak in this way about the same age that we live in. 1 John 5 verse 19. Can we look at that? Um, this back one? Thanks. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now John writes that understanding that Satan, the evil one, has been defeated at the cross. This is post Jesus' death and resurrection. He knows the kingdom's been inaugurated. He, he knows that Jesus has won. He knows that sin's been defeated. He knows that the, the death of death is now inevitable and all these things. And his comment is this. The whole world, the whole world system we live in is under the power of the evil one. So the whole world system is being swayed and influenced by Satan one way or the other. Now, you've really got to get your head around this because some people really don't get it. Here's what I'm saying. I am saying that the evil one is behind secular atheism. I'm saying that the evil one is behind Sharia law. I'm saying that uh, the evil one is behind any earthly system that is not exalting and honouring Jesus as king. It's not just, when it says this, it's not just sort of saying, well, look for the things that are really dark. You know, it's not just a, oh, it's a communi- you know, communism. They deny the existence of God. Therefore, it's just communism. It is communism. It's also capitalism. Because capitalism says, Get enough stuff and you'll be happy. That's not true. Every world system that doesn't acknowledge Jesus as king is ultimately doomed to failure and is in rebellion against him. Now we have to live in that, but you've got to be aware of that. And this is where you, you've got to be, you've got to have a biblical understanding of the way these things are presented. You, you can't just pick and choose. The whole world lies under the sway of the power of the evil one. And then, according to the Bible, it's gonna, it's, it will get worse and worse. So 2 Timothy 3 says, Understand it in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Some of these people would say, I'm following the Lord. Denying its power, avoid such people. So, just look at that list. I mean, and, and with that in mind, think about some of the headlines you might have seen recently. Even stuff you think, well, is that really a big deal? The thing of remember, massive rise in child, um, sorry, animal cruelty. Like, massive rise in that. Um, now, I'm not, you know, I'm not that guy that sort of has posters of dolphins and tigers on my wall. I'm, I'm not that. I'm not a massive animal lover. But when I hear about animal cruelty, I get sad. And here's primarily why. Because I'm sad, I'm, what makes me really sad is what's happened to the image of God in that person who has been actually entrusted by God to rule over creation on God's behalf. That is a real, that's the image of God has been ruined. It's, it's terrible. So I feel, I guess, some degree of compassion for the animal. The thing that makes me saddest is this person is supposed to reflect God's image in creation and subdue it in a godly way and what they're destroying. Or actually as well, though, speaking even more seriously, there's been a big rise, isn't there, in things, child cruelty, even awareness of it, 
massive, massive growth in children needing fostering and adopting and clothing, and, and it's just the figures are insane. And uh, it's, I just want you to wake up. You've got to be awake. We can't just jump from Christian meeting to Christian meeting and kind of assume everything's okay. It's not. Jesus is one, and out of his victory, he calls us into warfare. And that, that warfare is, a, is about standing up against all these things in a godly way, in a good and in a godly way, which we'll look at over the coming weeks. It's so important that you see these things and understand this is the worldly view. We live in evil days. So there's to be something constant about our vigilance, our watchfulness, our care. Now, it's not that we're not joyful, because that's one of our greatest weapons. Actually, the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So, it's not that we're not joyful, um, we should know how to party. It's not that we lack peace, we should know how to rest. But, we should dance with our shield at our side and sleep with our sword under our pillow. Yeah? It's that, that's, the, that's the image that we should live with. We, yes, we rest, hallelujah, but we've got our sword ready at any moment. Yeah? Yeah, we party, we celebrate, we, we enjoy Jesus primarily and we enjoy the good things of life but we're ready at any moment to deflect the darts that come in or to deflect the seduction that begins to shine from in. That's the image, that's the look that we've, got to, that we've got to go for. Now, what I want to do now with the rest of this message is simply give you three reasons why you can be encouraged even though you live right bang in the middle of the evil day. Three reasons you can be encouraged. Number one, the Bible says this, we also live in the day of salvation. Not just the evil day, also the day of salvation. So if we look at 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, it just tells us, it's, it's a short one, but just gives you a sense, shows you, I'm not making it up. Behold, now is a favourable time. Now is the day of salvation. So that means that the age that we are living in is the age where God is looking to save. God is looking to draw people to himself. God is looking for none to perish. God is looking to win people. So our response mustn't be to hide away, because it's the evil day. No, our response must be to be on the front foot because it's the day of salvation. Yeah? So it's not about survival. You mustn't just have a Christian survival mentality. No, it's a Christian revival mentality. Yeah? If we're looking to see God bring life, God change lives, God renew, restore, God call people to repentance and faith, God bring a brand new regeneration, the Holy Spirit filling, that is what we should be seeing. It absolutely is. You might say, yeah, but I know that happens in Africa, Stefan. I know, I know that happens in South America, but we live in London. Well, just give me a scripture that says it's not going to happen here, and I'm with you. Just, that's, all I'm, that's all I want. One scripture says, Europe's too hard. Hmm. We're not going to find one, are we? All we've got is things like, nothing is impossible for the Lord. Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. And just like Andy testified today, God's word said this in their situation, but the situation looked like this, what do you do? You believe God. Yeah? And you go in light of what God has said. This is what the Lord has said. Okay? We are, as a church in the UK, really, to be honest, on the rebound out of decades of being on the back foot and surviving and all the rest of it. So we're just still building up our steam and getting our momentum going. But we are on the right track as we continue to press hard and proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ. We really are. It, it, the Bible talks about the age we live in as an age of God's, of God's patience, God's wanting all to come, wanting none to perish. If you're here, you don't know the Lord Jesus today, it's an age of God's patience, an age of God 
waiting, wanting, calling. So the Bible says all people to repentance. He's calling you. Turn away from sin and turn to him. That's what he's doing. Which, which, which means that you being here today, whether you're here by chance, by fluke, by being dragged or whatever, you can leave here knowing that you are now a friend of God, that that enmity, that hostility with God has been uh, dealt with through Jesus' work on the cross, that you've been forgiven, that you're a brand new creation. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? You think, I'm actually saying you can walk into Haberstock School on a rainy Sunday afternoon for a few hours, walk out again, and you are brand new and reconciled to God. I know it's crazy, but it's the gospel, it's the message. It's, it's not the place. I told the caretakers, it's not the place. It's this message of Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead and he gives new life to all who call upon his name. To all who genuinely turn away from their sins and cling to him, he will make you brand new and he will give you, uh, he will give you new life. As you, as you recognize that living for yourself is not what you were created for, but living for him is. And as you, as you submit to his lordship, make him the king of your life. So if that's you, you want, you know, Jesus, you want to know eternal life, it's here for you. It's here for you. And we'll give an opportunity to respond to that at the end. This is how um, Peter describes, um, some people say, oh yeah, okay, so it's an age of pay, it's an age, you know, God's going to return and, yeah, sure, tell us yeah, for the other one. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days of scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Does it continue? Right. Yeah. They deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. So by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exists was stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So do not overlook this one fact, beloved, with the Lord, one day, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The ungodly will be destroyed at the day of judgment. And the Bible describes all of us as ungodly. And the only way for that to be remedied is for us to cling to Jesus Christ, the only godly man. And from being joined with that godly man to be considered godly simply by the fact that we are joined to him. It's God, God, is, God is being very patient today. Incredible. But it's not to be taken lightly or taken for granted. Oh, you are, okay, fine. You know, oh, well, you know, well, I'll figure it out next year. I've got some fun things I want to do first. That's really not clever. That really isn't clever. Um, because um, it won't always be the day of salvation. Second reason to be encouraged, it's the last days. It's the last days. And the Bible says this about the last days. In the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, and those, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So it's, it's the evil day, but it's also the day of salvation, and it's also the last days where God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. So, we live in an age where God wants to powerfully, dynamically equip his church in the Holy Spirit. We are, we are ankle deep in this stuff, and um, we do not intend to stay ankle deep in this stuff. And we are going to press in and press on for all that the fullness of the Holy Spirit means. I just want to say that. If you're here as a Christian, checking us out as a church, thinking, what kind of church is this? 
mad for the Holy Spirit. Absolutely charismatic, call us whatever thing you want. We want more of God's presence. We are hungry for the gifts of the Spirit. We are hungry for the fruit of the Spirit. We want all that God wants to do in us. We want to prophesy, but we want to do it filled with love. We want to pray for the sick, filled with kindness. We want the gifts and the fruit. We want the lot. We believe God's promised in this age. He wants to fill us with his spirit. We are going for this. We feel that we're somewhat amateurs, learning, growing, but we're charging ahead. That's what we're about. We feel we're safe doing it because we are rooted in the word. Uh, If it's not in there, we don't really want to get involved. But if it is in there, we're in. Amen? Amen. So that's the kind of line, all right? That's what we're about, just in case you're wondering. Now speaking to you, Revelation Church, come on, let's keep pressing into more of God. Let's keep speaking more of the Spirit. Let's not, don't, don't get timid. Let's not get um, uh, complacent. Let's not become lethargic. Let's, let's not lose heart. Let's not be discouraged. Let's keep pressing into God more and more. I mean, even just hearing such brilliant testimonies, you know, that, that prophetic word from you. Um, about Hazen's thing at work, and then the next, you know, the next first day back at work after that, the fulfilment. That we've got to really take heart from things like that, um, because more and more, I believe, the kind of prophecies that should be uttered here should be the kind of things that someone would say. There's no way that, that could be a coincidence, you know, you know, like you know, you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be okay. You know, we want to move from just general stuff like that that could have happened anyway to stuff where the Bible says people say. Surely God is among us. It's a real thing. But we haven't got to dress it up or make it seem some just the very content of what God is revealing to us and people's rights have been changed. So that's the second thing. And the final, the final area of encouragement is this, is that not just the day of salvation, not just the last day, but the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And um, this is how the Bible describes the day of the Lord. Come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then again in Revelation, it says it like this. saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. From God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. That's us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them. There will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he, also, and he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I'll be his God and he'll be my son. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's the day of the Lord which is A serious contrast, I guess. You see, I guess no one really wants to read the last sentence. It's a lot easier if I just ended on, he will be my son. But you know, at the end of the book of Revelation, it says this. 
we mustn't add to this and we mustn't take away from it either. And I would be a little bit concerned that if I just decided, you know what, I'm going to end it there and I'm, we're not going to put that little bit on the end there, actually, functionally, I'm taking away from it. Functionally. I wouldn't be saying it's not in there. I wouldn't be cutting out of my Bible. But I would be proactively not exposing you to this. You need to see this. God is holy. God is, and if I'm honest, one of the biggest concerns, I teach quite a lot on prayer and various places go around and do training to teach him teach on verity, teach on the gospel, and teach grace. And very often people don't seem very amazed by grace. Wow, and I'm going for it, you know, even all I've got for the glory of God. And I'm thinking, there's a lack of amazement on here. And I think it's because people don't get sin. They don't get it anymore. They don't get sin and they don't get God's holiness. They don't get God's holiness. They don't get the fact that he is really, really fiercely angry about sin. And that the gospel doesn't change that. The gospel doesn't mean that God isn't angry about sin anymore. The gospel means that God's anger at sin was concentrated on Christ. And if you come to Christ, then by the grace of God, the Father will not punish the same sin twice. He's punished Christ for your sin, but he's not going to punish you for that sin. Christ was punished for it. But if you reject Jesus, then you remain under the active wrath of God who is fiercely angry about sin. This is, this is the God of the Bible. I'm not going to apologise for him. And although in our society, because we live in a very relative society where no one says anything right or anything's wrong, everyone's kind of like, well, if you believe that, that's kind of cool, but I believe this, and we'll, this is kind of how, well, if you think that, no, I'm not going to encroach on it. That's your line, this is my line. I'm living this way. So, and, and suddenly God comes in and says, that's not the case. This is right. This is wrong. And um, none of you are living righteously. And so you all deserve hell. But because I'm also love as well as holy, I'm going to give up my one and only son and punish him for your sin. It's outrageous. So that there can be a way of escape, one way of escape from this judgment. And as we escape from his judgment, and we're amazed, but then sometimes we find ourselves actually deep down feeling entitled to it. Deep down feeling in some way that actually, do you know what, yeah, I know Jesus did that, but you know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or whatever, you know, however, you, however it plays out. But entitlement, and you see deep-rooted in your heart. Or if things start going wrong, you start questioning the goodness of God, and you absolutely lose sight of the gospel because you're going through a hard season. And it's like, man, you haven't got it. Oh, you really haven't understood this thing. You really don't. If everything were to go wrong, I genuinely mean, if, if everything was to go wrong, the first words that should come from our mouth, from my mouth, should be, thank you for forgiving Jesus. Not because I really want this to go wrong, but thank you, you gave your son to me. It is outrageous that he acted. And it's even more sublime that he did. Incredible. It's incredible. This was scripture there from Revelation 21. We could just have it back up there. This is this is fine. This is could we have the next slide? This is fine. This is right. This is the vindication of God's holiness. This is God saying, I will not let sin go unpunished. This is God destroying those men who came into your village and Rate your sister. You can deal with it. You can deal with it. 
and God saying, I'm going to deal with that drink driver who ran over your kid. God's dealing with it. You deal with sin. But it's also God saying, I'm going to deal with you as well. For the things you think sin do. Every wrong being put right. Every single wrong being put right. And then it's God through the gospel. Removing that penalty. Clearing that debt. And saying, you go free. Turn your life. And suddenly you think, oh, I get it now. I get it now. And I want to say this to you, speaking to the church now. If you're playing around consciously with sin, we all sin, we all have sin, we all stumble in many ways. Yes. The Bible is clear on that. But if you are deliberately sinning, hiding, not getting right with God, living a double life, whatever it might be, you're really, you're really being foolish. You're really being foolish. And there's, no, there's no need for you to, to do that because sin, though it brings pleasure, never brings happiness. The pleasure is fleeting and it always leaves you feeling empty, poverty-stricken, shameful. There, so there's no even benefit in it. But se- secondly, the Bible says even if you come into the light, which means you confess your sin, he's not going to judge you. He's going to forgive you and cleanse you. So it really doesn't make any sense. So I just want to appeal to you, if you're a Christian, to take this stuff seriously. Because once you begin to let God teach you how to really hate sin and mourn over your sin, then when you receive grace from Christ, you will be amazed. And you will be in awe of him. And you'll want to worship him. And you'll want to talk about him. And you'll want to put him first. It's really, really important. If you're here with someone who's not a Christian, you've never given your life to Christ, you are in a genuinely dangerous predicament as I speak. You are under the wrath of God and he doesn't want you to be. So it's not like the preacher says it and then he's delighted about it. I'm not. God isn't. The Bible says God's calling everyone to turn away. He doesn't want you to be under his wrath. He wants you to be in his embrace, reconciled. So I want to appeal to you at the end of the message. I want to appeal to you and say, Surely, when the law returns and makes all things new, you want him to wipe away every tear from your eye, to, to just draw you into an eternity of bliss with him. Surely. What else? What, what would want to keep you from that? I want to call you to repent now. I want to call you to put your trust in Christ. There's many faces here I don't, I don't know. You may all be believers. I don't know, but some of you may not be. And or some of you are actually, I'm speaking now, I think for some of you, you are nominally. You are because it's all you've ever known. But actually, you don't actually know in your heart whether you are. And today, it's, it's, it's paramount that we say, Jesus, you are the Lord. I want to follow you. Not just because it's where I've come from or my background, my history. For others of you here, maybe the opposite of that. You brought up with something completely opposite. But today, it's time to choose the thing. Let's just be before God today. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us. Thank you that it's the day of salvation, that it's the last days when you pray your spirit, and thank you for the day of the Lord. We just bless you today. And as I, just, as I pray now, 
ask for to any here that are not clear on this, are not sure, or just know that they're not, but they want to know you now. I pray that you would give them grace now to confess that you are Lord, to confess that you are Lord. I'm going to just be quiet for a second now. And if you're here in the room today, and you're, you, you know that you're not a Christian, but you want to be one, or you're just not sure, or you're like a nominal Christian, but you know you just need to come to Christ. And the Bible says that if you confess in your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And well, I'm going to just leave silence for a minute and I'm going, to, I'm going to say that if that's you and you know today's the day, then I'm going to ask you to cry out where you're sitting, Jesus Christ is Lord. To say those words. To make the public confession. To make, not, not whisper those words, but to declare those words. Jesus Christ is Lord. And... Um, at that point, we can just pray with you and encourage you to just get you off to an amazing start, nailing your colours to the master Jesus. So I'm going to just be quiet now.